The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Distinguishing between mediation and meditation. That's not easy to do. Oh, it's nice to be here. It was uh, a trip from the Civic Center in San Francisco to get here today, tonight. Some of you might have been here, uh, oh, about a month or so ago. I can't remember exactly when I was here before, and I talked about listening. Uh, listening as spiritual practice. And in that talk, um, I outlined four steps to really taking on listening as a spiritual practice. And when Andrea asked me to substitute for her for the next four weeks, I decided to take all that I had thought about for that talk and expand it into four more talks beginning tonight. So I'm going to take each of the four basic points that I talked about a month or so ago and have those be the theme of the talk tonight and for the next three weeks. And I'm sure you remember exactly what they are, but for those of you whose minds or memories are more like mine, I'll remind you. The first point that we're going to focus on tonight is to, that listening as a spiritual practice requires us to become curious and to give up certainty. Such an easy thing to do. And next week, I'll talk about listening for connection to others and to life. And three, two weeks from now, I'll talk about we must learn to listen to what is not said and to what we don't hear. And then finally, three weeks from now, I'll talk about there are no others to whom we listen, not to. Just to keep you on your toes. So, <clears throat> we have these weird beliefs about listening and communication. We believe it's mostly about talking. And sometimes in our practice, we begin to develop curiosity about and learn about the principles of wise speech. And so we try to improve our speaking and our ability to speak with care and wisdom rather than mindlessly. But in my experience, no, roughly 90%, give or take, of communication is about listening. Not the kind of listening that you're doing right now, which is listening a little bit to what I'm saying and mostly to your own thoughts. The thoughts that are stimulated by what I'm saying and take you off somewhere down a tunnel and you wander down there for a little while and then I say something else and it pulls you back and you go in and out of listening to me 
and listening to your own thoughts and not really listening to either, just sort of losing it for a little while, being out there in the void of non-listening space. True? That's the way it is for me. That's the way my mind works. So listening skillfully requires us to practice. It is a very challenging practice, and it's actually what meditation on one level is all about. In meditation, we are listening to what's arising. Our thoughts, our breath, our bodily experiences, the sensations, where our mind goes when it wanders off and when it comes back. So whenever I wish to communicate with someone, it's important for, especially about something important, it's necessary for me to prepare myself for what I want to say, but it's even more important that I prepare myself to listen. To listen to what that person's perspective is, what their needs, wants, ideas, interests are. And check out when she has spoken Check out with her what I've heard and see if I'm hearing accurately, if I'm tracking accurately, get feedback from her as to what I've heard, and then give her a chance to clarify if I haven't heard accurately. Unlike our tongues, our ears will never get us in trouble. What got me interested in this topic of listening, besides my practice as a mediator at the court, where listening is very, very important, I came across a book by a poet author named Mark Nepo. I mentioned this a month or so ago, this same book. It's called 7,000 Ways to Listen, Staying Close to What is Sacred. And Mark Nepo is the author's name. And he begins the book by describing a conversation he had with a Nigerian linguist named Olasape Oleandra. And he describes Oleandra as, as bringing languages alive like tropical plants and speaking of them as rooted things that sprout and reached into all directions for the light. And he marveled in that conversation with Mark Nepo, that there are 7,000 living languages on Earth, and those are the ones we know of. And later, Mark Nepo reflected that there must therefore be 7,000 ways to listen. In fact, philosophers have noted, those that really study the ontology of things, the phenomenology of things, that hearing has a distinction that is not shared with any of our other senses. For example, every sense we have has a kind of simple nature and then a more active, assertive nature. So, for example, 
I can see versus really looking or staring. That requires more energy and more assertion on my part. Or I can smell, just allowing whatever sense to come into my nose. Or I can actively sniff or inhale. So there's more of an active aspect. Tasting versus savoring. Touching versus grabbing or caressing. And hearing versus listening. So each of the senses has that sort of relaxed, open quality and the more assertive, determined quality to it, aspect to it. And each of those also allow for what the Buddha described as the three reactions to any sense door, any experience from any sense door. We either like it, we don't like it, or we're neutral about it. And that's the sum total of our experience. Whatever we smell, taste, touch, hear, see, we either like, dislike, or we're neutral. But <clears throat> listening, excuse me, listening has kind of a tertium quid, as my favorite law professor would say, a third thing. It has a different quality even than the relaxed, open quality versus the more assertive quality of the other senses. And the etymology of listening is helpful when thinking about it. From the, the French for listening, attentively literally means to stretch the ear, an expression that evokes a deep curiosity rather than just hearing. The dis this distinction that I'm pointing to with listening from all the other senses is that in inherent in listening is understanding. So if I'm hearing you speak, I don't want to just hear the words. I want to understand you. When I speak, I want you to not just hear my words, I want you to understand what I'm saying. So in that way, listening, hearing is different from any of our other senses. <clears throat> and what we're doing when we're trying to understand is we're straining towards the meaning of your words. We're right on the edge of grasping what does it mean that you're saying? What does your communication mean to you? And what are you wanting it to mean to me? So one way to describe skillful listening would be that we're right always on the edge of meaning. We're searching for meaning. As, uh, what's your name? I'm sorry? Sue? As Sue was reading this biography of me that I've heard a few times, and I'm actually familiar with all aspects of it, having <laughs> experienced it, 
I was the first public defender in Charleston, South Carolina. I've been a civil rights lawyer, a teacher, a law professor, and now a mediator and a meditator. And especially as a trial lawyer, I began then to learn that listening was the most important skill for being a good trial lawyer. I had to listen, as I'll talk about in a few weeks, not only to what the witness was saying, but what they weren't saying. And I had to hear a silent jury that couldn't speak to me. I had to hear what they were listening for and be able to communicate that to them. So uh, that was a time that I really began to get curious about this listening business. So what does the Buddha teach about listening? Surprisingly, quite a bit. Because the whole practice of mindfulness is listening. In one of his sutras with an unpronounceable name for me that translates as the root of all things, he describes all the ways that we distort our views and perceptions through our minds. And he lists 24 ways that we distort what we either experience through any of the senses or in this case listen to and he said, he taught, she perceives the herd as the herd. Having perceived the herd as the herd, she conceives herself as the herd, conceives herself in the herd, conceives herself apart from the herd, conceives the herd to be mine. Why is that? Because she has not fully understood it. So what he's saying there is that whatever, whenever we are experiencing through any of our sense doors, we experience it through the three characteristics that are fundamental to all of life. Those three characteristics I'm sure you've heard many times. We take what is impermanent to be permanent, anicca, we take what causes suffering to be what brings happiness, dukkha, and we take what is not self to be self. So if I experience myself in the herd, I am taking what I hear to be about Daniel. And I'm constructing a view of Daniel based on what I hear, based on my perceptions of what I'm hearing. She regards what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought, mentally pondered, thus. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. So just think about a conversation that you had today with someone. Perhaps it was a pleasant conversation. 
Perhaps it was a not so pleasant conversation. Perhaps you liked what was talked about. Perhaps you didn't like it. But notice how subtly, whether you liked it, disliked it, or were neutral about it, in some way, it was about you. You took it to be, in my case, about Daniel. I had a really yucky example, a little embarrassing, but we're all here together as good practitioners. I had a doctor's appointment this morning at 9.30. And since I work in the city and live in Marin, I have to have appointments early in the morning, and that was the earliest in the morning I could get. And this is a doctor I've been trying to see for some time. So I arrived there right at 9.30, and the young lady comes up and says, uh, there's no appointment for you today, Mr. Bowling. <laughs> and I say, well, it's right here on my calendar. I'm, well, no, your appointment is next week at 11.30 in the middle of the day. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? And then another young lady comes up and says, oh, I called and left a message at your house saying that uh, Dr. Alfrey was going to be in surgery this morning and he couldn't see you until next week and I gave you the earliest appointment that I could next week. I was not a happy person. It was about me and my too busy life and my schedule and how could they call my house where my wife and I have just moved and our home phone isn't working. And I said, you call my home phone, you don't have my cell phone or my office phone? Oh yes, they're right here on the record. Yes, they are. And I'm thinking out loud. I'm not thinking to myself, I'm saying, and it's okay to call and leave a message and not make sure the person got the message? So it was all about me, and now that I think about it again, it's still all about me. <laughs> but fortunately, before I left, I managed to find my breath, and I managed to remember, really to be completely truthful, that I was coming here tonight to talk about listening, and that I needed to listen in this particular moment. And apropos of what I'll focus on in a couple of weeks, I needed to listen to what was not being said. And when I did that, the focus went off of me and how this was messing up my schedule and messing up my day and I'd use sick leave to come there at 9.30 instead of being to work at 8 o'clock and yada, 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 this story in my head. And I saw this young woman in a job that I'm sure is quite stressful, dealing with a lot of upset people like me, like I was being. And I heard her fear of having made a mistake. I heard her concern 
that I would make a big deal of it and get her in trouble. And I heard her overwhelm. Now, she didn't say any of those things to me. But when I stopped having it be about Daniel, I could hear her. And that shifted my whole way of speaking to her and being with her. And it actually brought more peace to me about how she had completely, utterly, irresponsibly <laughs> screwed up my day. <laughs> and I'm sure each of you has in some way or another, probably today, had some version of that experience. So when we listen through the three characteristics of believing that what is impermanent is permanent, and in that moment, the upset and the anger that I was experiencing, I experienced at, in that moment as a permanent condition. I was really upset. And secondly, to take what is not suffering to be suffering. So I'm taking that which is uh, my mind construct as something that is causing me suffering out there instead of recognizing that it's my mind that is creating that perception and I have control over it and I can let go and choose to release that suffering as I ultimately did in that moment once I got past the third characteristic which was recognizing, hey, this isn't about me. It sure seems like it's about me and I certainly made it about me but as soon as I released that I was free, and I was able to help the young receptionist find some freedom. But mostly, we hold on to various aspects of our life, our work, our relationships, as permanent and fixed. This is the way they are. This is the way this is. This is the way my family is. This is the way my boss or worker, co-workers are, they are this way, this is the way my health is, this is what I like, this is what I don't like. We have turned each of those into a permanent story that creates our suffering and that we make to be the story of Daniel and his day the story of who he is and how he reacts to things. The movie of our lives entitled, It's All About Me. <laughs> I just had the delightful experience this past weekend of my wife's daughter coming for a visit with her two 
little girls, one of whom is almost three and the other one who just turned eight. And little Ava, who's just, just in, in a month, she'll be three. So it's definitely about her. <laughs> no, that two-ness that I'm sure most of you have experienced. It's about her. And everything centers around her in her world. And it's very interesting to see the intensity of it at that particular age. And of course, it's quite age appropriate. And she's beautiful and full of energy and full of life and love. So it's easy to guide and direct and help her to have it be about her. It becomes greatly dysfunctional when at 9.30 in the morning in my doctor's office, I become Ava. <laughs> so, I've said that our meditation practice at its most fundamental level is listening. So what's the first step to really turning listening into a spiritual practice? To become curious requires that we give up certainty. So listening implies a certain curiosity, does it not? If I'm really listening, I want to both hear you and get your meaning. So I have a certain level of curiosity if I'm listening at all, truly listening. But, for the most part, we listen inside of what we know. What I, if you're a good friend of mine, the self that I've constructed call my good friend, I'll just say, Jane. I have a Jane, and she is this way. So when I listen to Jane, I listen from the place I know. I know the way Jane is. I have her all figured out. And I know who she is, and I know what she likes and dislikes, and how she's going to react. This is especially true about my mother. I just had a nice hour-long talk with her in the traffic on 101. She's almost 93 and delightful. And uh, we have very interesting conversations. My dad was a Baptist minister, and. Uh, I'm coming to a Buddhist meditation center. <laughs> I don't like that you're going down there and you need to be home resting. Yes, mother. <laughs> so there are people in our lives that we listen to from a place of knowing who they are rather than letting go of that certainty. So I'm offering to you the practice this coming week of beginning to notice when you are listening through what you already know. Knowing protects us. We, we are evolutionarily driven to know. 
Because if I don't know where the saber-toothed tiger is, I'm no longer in the gene pool. And we didn't get those ancestors as ancestors because they were gone. If I don't know which plants are dangerous and which are healthy, if I don't know how to tell the weather when a bad storm is coming, I won't be able to protect my crops or protect my family. So knowing is deeply part of our automatic survival mechanism. We are thrown to know and to know quickly in any situation. Just think about the last time you went to any kind of party or gathering. If you didn't know the people there, or most of the people there, at least for me, there's always a little uncertainty when I'm going into the room. Now, I'm saying that uncertainty is a good thing, but I know that when I don't know, when I'm going into a situation where there's uncertainty, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like that feeling. So what I'm actually suggesting is we cultivate a place that doesn't feel good to us. The place of uncertainty, where I consciously notice when my knowing defense mind arises, and I note it knowing knowing, and I let go, and I open then. Because otherwise, we're stuck in hearing that which we expect and what we know. Remember that as children, we loved novelty. We loved being out of control. I saw that with Ava on Sunday when I took her to the park. She's totally in her body and it's just a little force of energy. And she was all over the place and walk, climbing up the sliding board backwards and swinging on the bars and, you know, terrifying me most of the time until I realized that she was so in her body she was completely happy and fine. And I could let go of knowing what was good for her and let her just be. And she was, had a great time. And so did I, once I let go of that tight knowing place. It's so hard for us not to know. It's potentially embarrassing we potentially put ourselves on the spot. We potentially open ourselves to discomfort. It's especially true in our intimate relationships because knowing is one way that the power dynamic in an intimate relationship is maintained. The power dynamic that we've constructed when we learn not to know the other, we actually give ourselves, both of ourselves, space to become 
more than each of us knows. As long as we know the other, we hold ourselves imprisoned in what we know. I can't see you grow or develop or change because I know the way you are, and that's what I see. So we actually have to call forth an intention to listen with uncertainty, with curiosity. We have to, it's like overriding our thrown way of interacting with others. Because knowing is so deeply embedded in us as a self-protective mechanism. That's exactly what happened to me this morning in the doctor's office. I knew that I had an appointment at 9.30, and I knew that I'm a very busy, important lawyer who works for the federal court. And I knew that I hadn't gotten any message about changing the appointment, and I knew that I was affronted by what happened. So letting go of all that, I had to allow myself to get vulnerable in that situation. And the weird thing about this, I'm reading this very interesting book. I think I have the title here somewhere, yes. It's called Leadership and the New Science, Discovering Order in a Chaotic World. It's about the Newtonian physics that we were all taught and grew up with, where things are known, what we see is what we see, an apple is an apple, our physical senses are grounded in what we actually experience, what we perceive about the universe, but we're now living in a quantum world. The machines that we are most attached and addicted to are based on quantum physics. Our cell phones, our computers, our iPads and tablets. But we don't, we're still living, for the most part, in Newtonian reality. So, what's an example of that? Well, there's this wonderful experiment that I just read about in this book called the double slit experiment. And some of you who have studied science, which I haven't, may already know about this. A particle, I'm sorry, an electron is actually both a wave and a particle. It manifests in the double slit experiment. There is a surface that has two slits, two openings, and then another surface where when an electron passes through one of the slits, on the second surface, it's recorded the form that it exhibited when it passed through the slit. So if I'm the scientist and the electrons are coming towards this slit, I can open one slit 
or two slits. And if I open one slit, the electron comes through and when it lands on the second surface, it's recorded as a particle, as a point. If I open both slits, even though the electron obviously only passes through one, but if I open both slits, it's recorded as a wave. And if I wait till the very last moment before the electron comes up against the slit and quickly change it, it doesn't matter. If I have two slits open, the electron appears as a wave. If I have one slit open, it appears as a particle. It's as if the electron knows what I'm intending to measure. It's as if the electron knows my mind as the scientist who's measuring what I'm going to measure before I make that decision. So at the very moment that I do it, it shifts how it appears to me. Our listening is not that way. Our listening is Newtonian. We predetermine what we're going to hear by our attitude, by our beliefs, by our perceptions of each other, by the way you look to me based on my history of people who look like you. I have a thrown way of listening to you. So we listen from the certainty of the physical reality of a Newtonian world when in fact we're, we're evolving literally and shifting into a world of quantum reality where we begin to see that what appears appears based on what we intended to see. So let me say that another way. In my Newtonian reality, I'm unconscious about the fact that my intent, my attitudes and beliefs that I bring into any interaction, causes that interaction to be the way I experience it. I'm not aware of that. That's the way it is, but I'm not aware of it. I assume that it's because you're the way you are. In the quantum reality, we see that how an electron appears as either a particle or a wave is determined by the scientist who's measuring its intention. If they open one slit, it's a particle. If they open two slits, it's a wave. So how that scientist intends is how it arises. If we live that way, if we listen that way, imagine the difference in our world. If I listen to you knowing that my intention 
impacted on how our relationship would be, perhaps I would be more open, more mindful of my own intention, more curious about my intentions, and more willing to be uncertain about how you are. Modern science attempts to systematically observe the world around us, but science is not done in an objective world free of observer influence. Every observation is preceded by a choice about what to observe. No one, not scientists, nor leaders, nor children, simply observes the world and takes in what it offers. So let me read that again. No one, not scientists, leaders, or children, simply observes the world and takes in what it offers. We all construct the world through lenses of our own making and use these to filter and select. We each actively participate in creating our worlds. We all construct the world through lenses of our own making and use these to filter and select what we see, what we experience, what we hear. We each actively participate in creating our worlds. It's a very humbling recognition. If we let that in deeply, that the suffering that we all, the dukkha we experience, the suffering, by clinging to that which is impermanent as permanent, by making it be about ourselves, comes from our own minds. And so at the time that it's also humbling, it also has this incredible potential for freedom in there. Can you just taste a little bit of that? The task, obviously, is to train our minds in remembering when we're actually in that experience that we've all shared, similar to mine, of being in the doctor's office at the wrong time and the wrong place through no fault of ours and reacting in a way that is unskillful. Can we at that moment remember? I was lucky this morning because I had just prepared for this talk. I stayed up late last night. <laughs> and I was coming here. So it was, you know, it would have been really embarrassing if I made a bigger jerk of myself than I did. I at least caught myself halfway through and remembered what I was doing tonight. <laughs> so, to do that, we have to surrender to not knowing. So the practical practice is uncertainty. The moment we find ourselves Knowing is the moment to go, ah, breathe. 
open, relax, curiosity, way out on the skinny branches, terrifying, because we've so protected ourselves, those of us that have survived with some amount of togetherness in our lives, in the chaotic world in which we live, we have survived by knowing. But you wouldn't be here if you hadn't realized that merely surviving doesn't get you the brass ring on the merry-go-round. It just gets you another ride on the merry-go-round and another and another and another. The way off the merry-go-round is not to know. When we don't know, this is again from Margaret Wheatley's book, when we surrender to not knowing, the resulting curiosity opens us to the quantum reality that whatever we experience is co-created by our process of observation about what we choose to notice. It doesn't exist independent of those activities. So, whatever we experience, whatever is known, is co-created by our process of observation from decisions we the observers make about what we choose to notice. And so I can't possibly talk you into my version of reality. It's idiocy for me to try. Because whatever you see is determined by what you chose to see. What you intended to see. What your whole life story and construct caused you under those conditions and those circumstances to perceive and see. So if I see it differently than you and I try to convince you that I'm right and you're wrong, we all know where that goes, but that doesn't keep us, fortunately for me and my work, it doesn't keep us from doing that because if people stopped doing that, I would be out of business. I wouldn't have a job. There wouldn't be any lawsuits anymore, any courts, or any need for lawyers. So, let's make my job a thing of the past. Let's wipe out the need for courts and lawyers and disagreements by trying to convince each other that we're right and that our perception of reality is the correct one. Instead, lead with the incredibly courageous act of curiosity and not knowing. Because as we learn simply to witness and observe the fears that arise, the pretense that's behind that effort to know. I had to be 
the important lawyer from the federal court that I perceive myself as being with this young woman this morning. I mean, that's how I perceive myself as being. So I got hooked right away by being disrespected in this way of having my appointment canceled without ever knowing about it. That's how I've constructed Daniel. So I was caught right there. How can we truly listen from what we know? It's impossible. We have to shift from judgment to openness. We have to shift from being right to being curious. We have to open to the reality that our intent unconsciously or consciously, our intent creates what we perceive. This is by Wendell Berry. Though the air is full of singing, my head is loud with the labor of words. Though the season is rich with fruit, my tongue hungers for the sweetness of speech. Though the beach is golden, I cannot stand beside it mute, but must say, it is golden. While the leaves stir and fall with a sound that is not a name. It is in the silence that my hope is and my aim. A song whose lines I cannot make or sing sounds men's silence like a root. Let me say and not mourn. The world lives in the death of speech and sings there. Let me say and not mourn. The world lives in the death of speech and sings there. Let's sit for a moment. So the beginning of true listening is curiosity, letting go of certainty. I encourage you to enjoy that practice this week. 